Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. Young people who are caught up early in the justice system often face an array of challenges even before they get into trouble. Those can include untreated mental health problems, substance abuse, and dysfunctional or violent home lives. Four years ago, Project Adobe launched at the University of New Mexico, funded in part by Bernalillo County, and it's showing remarkable success in keeping young people from returning to the criminal justice system. Pediatrician Dr. Andrew Shee is the founder and director of Project Adobe, which stands for Averting Disparities in Outcomes by Building Engagement. Tell me, what are the challenges facing juveniles who are incarcerated in Bernalillo County? Um, we looked at this concept called adverse childhood experiences uh, that occurred in the lives of uh, young people before they were placed into the New Mexico secure juvenile justice system. And that group of kids had a large number of adverse childhood experiences before uh, they were committed to incarceration. And adverse childhood experiences, let's remind people what that means. So it's a set of conditions um, that create a major unresolved stress in the lives of children. So to the individual, there's the issue of emotional neglect, physical neglect, physical abuse, and sexual abuse of a minor. And those four things occurring in the lives of individuals um, often happen in secret. Often uh, kids are threatened with harm if they reveal it, and, and there's a lot of shame. A second set of things involve the family systems, and that includes having a parent with a unresolved mental illness or suicide attempts, a parent who has a substance use disorder, where there's violence directed against a mother or stepmother in the home, where um, a parent disappears out of the kid's life, where a parent is incarcerated or imprisoned. So what was found looking at this cohort of young people incarcerated was that they tended to have higher levels of these adverse childhood experiences. They tended to have more mental health issues, more substance abuse issues. That's correct. When they went in, um, about 100% of them had an AXIS-1 psychiatric diagnosis. What does that mean? The major psychiatric uh, disorders like uh, major depression, bipolar disorders, schizophrenia, psychosis, high level of anxiety, um, the kinds of things that really need uh, support from um, a care system, including uh, a psychiatry. And about 94% of them, 95%, had a substance use disorder identified when they entered, uh, but most of them had not had any kind of substance use treatment. So they have this background of uh, behaviors or, or mental health conditions, probably in some degree related to the kinds of stresses they had, which didn't have help and resolution and was, were often hidden and uncovered. Uh, and then they impulsively or otherwise get involved in crime, and then they're thrown into secure facilities. How did you envision Project Adobe meeting those challenges? So we had this opportunity to set up a model program uh, with uh, youth leaving the Bernalillo County uh, Detention Center. And they're a little bit younger. Uh, they have um, less uh, severe criminal involvement. Um, and we anticipated that there would be substance use disorder and psychiatric health needs, as well as uh, health harming social determinants affecting them and their families and educational needs and legal needs. So we built all those into the uh, Adobe program. And the primary intention is to reduce the number of times they go back into detention and hopefully interrupt the um, sort of school to prison pipeline model. So what kinds of things did you do um, to address all these problems that young people were facing as they came out of, of juvenile detention? We hired these folks called, navig we call them navigators. They're like community health workers, but 
they're not attached to a health system or insurance company, and they go and meet the young people in the detention center. And, and I want to say Burnley County Detention Center and their administrative staff have been terrific about collaborating. So they really can understand the need to reduce. Um, their rates prior to our starting estimated about 70% return a year, and nationally that rate's about 55%. So any, any juvenile, any young person entering uh, detention has a pretty high chance of going back. So they let us in to meet the young people while they were there, and then when they're released, um, the navigators made contact with them and their families. We set up medical appointments in the uh, comprehensive medical home, which includes primary medical care and psychiatric care simultaneously. And then the navigators meet with the families, understand what the social determinant needs are, and try to address that. So for example, a lot of the work they're doing right now is helping people access food. And then there's, if they have uh, civil legal issues that are unresolved, uh, they get them connected with the UNM Law Clinic. And there's a section on the Law Clinic that will um, evaluate their situation, see what they can do to resolve it, sometimes represent them in court. And then lastly uh, is the issue of education in the future. And so we have uh, folks uh, we call education liaisons or specialists who interface with the schools, whether public or charter or CNM, uh, to facilitate uh, young people uh, restarting their educational pathways. Clearly, if they can do that and can uh, obtain a degree, that their chances of better economic viability and future health um, experiences are much better. So what is the age range generally when kids are exiting or young people exiting? In the detention center, the age range is about 13 to 19. And so um, we uh, work with that group of kids, but we also, because an early critic said, well, they're going back to the families they came from, so what do you think is gonna happen? We said that, yeah, that's great. We're gonna work with the families. So we have siblings, parents, grandparents, anybody in that young person's life that can influence their likelihood of staying out of uh, return to incarceration, we will see in our primary medical system. We started working some with the young adult court because a lot of the young people we take care of, we are, when they hit 18, a lot of issues aren't resolved. And so we sort of think that we need to see if we can stay with them until they're in their mid-20s. What kind of outcomes have you seen? This is now four years into the program? We've had funding now since uh, July of 2017. So we've, we're a little more than three years in. So the primary measure of return to incarceration, as we look at our data over 2018, 2019, and 2019, 2020, um, with about 68 to 90 kids who were following regularly, the month that we had the highest return to uh, detention was uh, a rate of 8%. So how, do we, how does that compare to this population generally? Yeah, national data says 55% of kids will return in a year, and in Bernalillo County data says 70%. So we have reduced, in our view, the rate of return by a factor of seven to nine uh, in this population. And, and we wanted initially to work with kids who'd had two or more uh, experiences with detention prior to our working with them. because. Um, we really feel as a service university and, and in terms of a commitment to the community that we wanted to try to work with the kids who have highest risk because to not do that um, means that, that to some degree it's easy to overlook their situation and their family situation. 
it's worked out well enough that <laughs> folks want us to see kids before they commit that second offense. And, and that's great. You know, we're not going to say no. So are you getting primarily, your funding is coming mostly from Bernalillo County? Yeah, Bernalillo County and the UNM Health Sciences Center has, has supported us by allowing faculty to have time to do clinics and to allow me to have administrative time to work with the teams. We bring our team together weekly to talk about the families and uh, young people who are coming to clinic every week so that the whole team has a chance to have input in how things are going. I think that's another strength. It's an interdisciplinary look at how kids and families are doing so that it's not the perspective of only the medical provider guiding um, our interventions. That's interesting. So multidisciplinary, like who, talk about all the people who are on the team, what, what expertise they're bringing. Sure. So, so we have navigators who have uh, now, now a lot of phone contact. They're not going to the homes because of quarantine, but a lot of contact. I mean, day to day, like knowing what's going on with the kid and their probation uh, status, talking to them and their probation officers, um, the education folks who are talking to the schools. And, and for example, the education team will go to the school or be involved in a conference call around like an individual education plan for a kid who has special ed needs, which really helps because it's hard for any parent or kid to pick up all the information. Uh, so they're in the meeting, uh, law students, uh, a faculty attorney uh, are in the meeting, psychiatry team, medical team, and then our scheduler. And then we have some students who participate. So we have uh, usually between nine and 15 people who are getting together and spending about an hour, hour and a half talking about what we need to do to help any given family or kid. That's really interesting because my impression is when uh, young people or anyone falls into uh, incarceration or these other problems, there's this whole constellation of issues that got them to that point. But usually the remedies are sort of parceled out one by one, not holistically like that. And in some sense, it's punitive. Uh, and in some sense, it's also very much like um, this is all we can afford to do. You know, we can only do this because there's not enough money to really help somebody. Oh, but by the way, don't commit crime and, and you know, stay out of trouble. I just want to say that, you know, parenthetically, that there's a huge conversation going on about youth crime right now. Uh, in our community. And it's like a major political issue. And I, I think it's a significant concern for people, but I would just point out that there's all sorts of incredible white collar crime going on right now that is more expensive to society and is more erosive to the overall moral uh, situation for where we stand than is being caused by youth crime. And the same amount of law enforcement and prosecutorial attention were paid to the issues of white collar crime and investigating it, like, like tax avoidance or, or illegal deductions in business, um, society would benefit a great deal more from that effort uh, with a lot more funding to do the things that need to do to support people. This is University Showcase on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm talking with Dr. Andrew Shee, founder and director of Project Adobe, which focuses on helping young people leaving the Bernalillo County Juvenile Detention Center by making sure they and their families have the support and services they need to be successful. Have you found shortcomings to the model that have helped you adapt and grow and, and make changes? There are some real challenges. I mean, at the level of the client, um, things like cell phone service, minutes and data are often very limited. Um, and so just trying to stay in contact is hard. 
you know, the young people we see don't have any reason to trust us, uh, the university medical system or any provider, because they've been shunted around a lot and, and not really, in a sense, um, been seen by people who want to understand the full dimension of their issues. They have a lot of trauma, and, and we don't want to go back into their trauma and, and uh, cause secondary trauma, but we're aware of it and, and want to be available to help process through it. So at the client level, is that at the family level, there's often a lot of family difficulty with the young person. Um, sometimes parents are just throwing their hands up and giving up, and other times different family members are in conflict about how to, how to help the young person. Often the family members have substance use issues or psychiatric issues that unless we address them, interfere with uh, the long-term health. And the kids are often more worried about their parents and their parent figures and their health than they are about their own. So with a coordinated model, are you able to, I mean, these are longstanding issues in some families. Are you able to address some of these effectively to help the younger people? Well, so for example, we have parents and grandparents who are coming to us for uh, suboxone therapy for opioid use disorder. And, and are stabilizing. Um, and so when they're more stable and able to take care of things, and that means that the kid has a safer home to be in, uh, we have parents who are getting psychiatric uh, medication support. Uh, and when their depression is reduced or their distress is reduced, then, then the kid has a model to follow in terms of how to deal with their issues. We are resolving legal issues where often folks we take care of are, are running into real difficulties with landlords and particularly now with the issue of no income and eviction, but they're also mistreated on job sites and they have uh, a lack of sophistication in resolving issues like um, paying utility bills or sorting that out. So having uh, legal representation, when you go to the utility company with an unresolved bill and you have a law student with you, um, you get a whole different reception when you walk in on your own kind of thing. Um, the other thing too is just things like behavior health. Uh, for example, kids who are on medication-assisted treatment need to be in counseling. And we don't have a good way right now of coordinating behavior health counseling with our psychiatry and medical team. Um, behavior health system doesn't really feel like there's a need to coordinate care with people involved with the kid's life. So it's almost as though that whole behavioral health thing's happening in one universe and what we're doing with medications and medical management's happening in another universe. And that just isn't gonna work for the kid and it certainly won't work for the whole family. So we're trying to solve that issue. So they're seeing, they're helping the kid on their own, just focused on that and not dealing with what happens when the kid leaves their office. Right. So, you know, they'll talk to the kid about their substance use, you know, and, oh, gosh, that's great. You didn't use alcohol this week or, but they won't ask, so how are you doing with your sleep or how, how's, how are things going with your parents? The things that maybe triggers driving issues around substance use are things that are happening. They're opaque often in the behavioral health system. And, and it doesn't, in the holistic view of the kid, doesn't make sense in terms of how their brain and their neuroreceptor systems are working. Why is that happen and how can you overcome that? For one, it is a way that health, health services are paid for. And for a long time, behavioral health was, was underfunded and basically viewed as not essential. And, and up until uh, legislation around the ACA was passed, things like drug treatment wasn't viewed as an essential part of people's care. So there's been a long history. The other part of it is that, like in all things in the health system, there are financial advantages for people to not collaborate. And until the financing of health begins to look at coordinated care and reward efforts to collaborate, 
like the care management dollars insurance companies take per member per month, if that money were being used to create the systems to coordinate, there'd be a better chance that could happen. But right now it's being sequestered by, by insurance companies uh, under the context of, of care coordination or care management, which is fine if the person is a member in the insurance plan and the insurance plan recognizes that the kid has a problem. But the great majority of kids we take care of who by any means would be high risk in insurance don't have a care coordinator. They should, their family should have care coordinators, but they don't. And we're doing that work. And until that's, you know, somehow put together, uh, we're wasting a lot of public money and we're also not getting results. So it sounds like you're having really great results. Are you all trying to expand the model and maybe foster its replication in other places? Oh, yeah. I mean, we tried to last year get a bill through to uh, expand to Sandoval and Valencia counties. Um, because about half the kids in Bernalillo County Detention Center live in those two counties. And it's clear kids don't stay in Bernalillo County their whole time. They're, they're moving back and forth. We would like to have a uniform kind of model of care in the central Rio Grande. But our bigger goal is to create a safety net for all the kids coming out of the uh, secure facilities in New Mexico. I mean, that group of young people are at the highest risk. And, and, you know, the racial and ethnic disparities in terms of outcomes for health and justice are so great. If we could do it, if we could create a statewide system and find champions in, in the corners of the state to do this, I think we could really have an impact on crime as a general concept, but really wellness in a, in a big concept for kids and families um, throughout the state. And, and we have some opportunities uh, if we coordinate and direct funding. Well, and, it's, and it's a leadership issue to some degree. I mean, you know, the previous uh, state administration was really into the idea of reducing government and, and penalizing people further. This administration, I'm optimistic about in terms of their larger uh, context and view. They talk about legalizing marijuana and collecting taxes. And, you know, one could make the argument that with a new source of funding, legalizing marijuana, which has its own problems relative to increasing certain kinds of uh, crime issues, some of that tax money could be specifically set aside for prevention in youth services. So we're not asking for new money. Let's, if you're going to legalize it, let's direct the new taxation to a different direction. So that's one option. Do you think that that's a big challenge, though, to some lawmakers who are hesitant about legalizing cannabis, especially if you're talking about young people who might already have substance abuse issues. Absolutely. It, it is an issue. But, you know, what worries me is that they, they go about talking about it as though the issue is the substance as opposed to the toxic stress the kids have been through that caused them to try to seek relief. Now, the issue isn't so much to me the issue of legalizing marijuana. I, I personally think decriminalizing it may, probably makes more sense, but the issue is really around the lack of services that alleviate toxic stress or the lack of opportunity that causes people to seek relief from the substance. I mean, people will do it with alcohol even if marijuana is not legal. And I would just say that, you know, relative to the university, the idea that UNM as an anchor flagship university um, allows us to be able to think about constructing services and to some degree overcoming a lot of these uh, hurdles and providing research and information and education to leadership. When the emphasis on things like youth crime, it's, it's a bipartisan win-win uh, for 
all people involved. And it's mostly a win for the families because no family projects wanting their kid at 13 to enter the criminal justice system. That was Dr. Andrew Shee, founder and director of Project Adobe. I also spoke with Lepiphany Campos, education liaison with the project, who also worked as a navigator, and Elizabeth Castro, senior program manager. I think one of the challenges that we we see, but even more importantly, like we as a society need to see is that we are putting families and kids into situations that they can't really get out of. Once you're in that realm and you are a 13 year old and you don't have food and you don't have steady housing, what would you do? Like, (laughs) I I mean, it's a survival tactic um, it comes down to. So I think that is a really big barrier that maybe is bigger in terms of society, but we've created it. Lepiphany, how do you kind of overcome some of those challenges to help these young people see different paths? So I kind of use my own personal experiences to help others. I, I've been through different things in my in my personal life, just with trauma. And so when I see it, it's clear to me that that's what that is. I try not to push the family to do something they don't want to do, if that makes sense. I kind of go want to go at their own pace. So just slowly introducing to what I guess a new system of life would look like or a healthier system of life would look like. So I, I try to go at their pace and try, we're going to make changes and lay everything out on the table. It, it's difficult to kind of talk about the things you have to work on personally or just as a family. It can be hard and difficult for that family sometimes. And so the biggest thing I've learned in this position is patience. A lot of our families have been in systems a lot longer than we have. And so they're very savvy within the system. I always tell all of my staff, like, if you are working harder than the family is working, that's not how we want to run. We don't do things for you. We do them with you. Quite honestly, it's a heck of a lot easier for us to do it for them than for us to kind of guide them on how to do X, Y, and Z. So we have to have a significant amount of buy-in from the family or the kid themselves. Right. Um, I know you have to be uh, careful about confidentiality, but maybe could you walk me through a story of someone and looks to be on a better path now? We have this one kiddo who is one of five kids, um, and he um, has struggled pretty much his entire life. His mom has had substance use, um, and his siblings have all kind of gone through substance use. And when we got him, he was, should have been a junior in high school, but was an un, or reclassified freshman, I think. And our team worked really, really, really hard with him. And he ended up graduating high school four months later than he should have. But considering how far behind he was, that we were all kind of shocked that that happened. And he worked really, really hard to get those credits and, and to get that diploma. Um, And now he has an apartment by himself, has a job. He's still with our program because he wants that extra support, but he's now considered an adult and is doing really well. What are we doing wrong right now in our society and how are you guys trying to correct that? I think we're doing a lot of things wrong. (laughs) I don't think there's enough programs, first of all, in place for these kids as far as 
what happens after, you know what I mean? Like what happens to those kids that have the families that are dysfunctional and mom is using substances and things like that. And it's not a good place for him to go. Where do these kids go? What programs are in place that are consistent with getting these kids treatment or getting them the help that they need, helping them get on their feet. We don't have enough programs to really support all aspects of the youth. And I think that's part of the issue is that they're just in this cycle of repeating the same behaviors and the same hanging out with the same friends and the same things because there's really nothing. What can they do? You know, there's not enough things in place for them. So as a county, I'm sure you know that we, the county is kind of at the forefront um, nationally, uh, like juvenile detention alternatives initiative, which is keeping kids out of incarceration because the data supports that incarcerating kids doesn't work. (laughs) And, And I think one of the things that we have really identified a lack here in the county specifically, but really in the state is we send kids to RTC, right? Which is a residential treatment center. Um, So we send them out of state usually because we don't have a huge selection of RTCs here. We send them out of state, which is horribly expensive and the state covers that. And then they do really, really well and they're discharged because they're in this really nice controlled environment with adults and medical professionals and all of this stuff. And then we send them home and we send them to the exact same home that we've done absolutely no work with. So we haven't gotten mom treatment for her substance use or her mental health issues. We haven't addressed family trauma. We haven't dealt with younger or older siblings who also have issues. And we put them back in this home that's highly chaotic potentially, and then they reoffend or mom forgot to pick up their medicine because mom's got X, Y, and Z and they're off their medicine and then something happens and they're back in the justice system again. One of our like most important things that we do is when we have a kid who does go to a treatment center, we don't stop taking care of mom or we don't stop taking care of the family because we know that kid's coming back and we need to keep momentum moving with the family. A lot of programs won't. They will just stop kind of meeting with the parents or meeting with the family when the the primary kid is gone. Lepiphany, do you mind me asking? I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got into this kind of work. Again, like I said, I've been through some trauma down to abusive relationships, to uh, sexual trauma as a child, to, you know, me raising my own boys who Um, One is autistic and one with ADHD. So it's just, you know, my own challenges have really given me that passion to want to give back to others. And for me, I I feel like if I'm in a place where I'm at with a degree and two children and survive, I, I don't consider myself a victim, but a survivor. And so I try to think of that every day and not fall into that mindset of, oh, I can't do this today. I can't do that. I I try to motivate myself each day to want to give that to someone else, to give that empowerment to someone else so that they're able to wake up the same way and be like, you know what, I overcame that and I'm able to move forward and look past that and that um, and that I'm able to move forward. Um, And so I, I really relate to a lot of the clients in a lot of ways just because if I haven't been through it, I have known somebody who has or a family member close to me who has. And so it really just 
it hits home for me a lot of the times. And so it just, it's like a natural thing for me to be in this field of work and I love it. I love what I do. What do you all hope for going forward? One of the things that, that Andy, um, Andy and I have talked a lot about is how we move this to a state scale. Right now, we feel like kids in Bernalillo County are getting really good care, but there's kids from all over the state that aren't. Um, so that's one. And then the other thing I think is kind of using this model to move to the younger age group is, is going to be really important as we are able to get funding. We really, really feel strongly that the generational model of care is kind of how this state has to move forward because we have tried other models and they're not working. That was Lepiphany Campos and Elizabeth Castro with Project Adobe. We also spoke with Dr. Andrew Shi, founder and director of the project. You can find this episode and all our episodes of University Showcase at KUNM.org. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to University Showcase. Mm-hmm.